0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's great to be able to preach to you this morning. Uh, let me just say, as an apology, I had something incredible planned for you this morning that would have been, frankly, unforgettable for all of you and for me. But Joseph, during Sunday school, uh, put the kibosh on it, so I just have to be boring. So because I am boring, blame Joseph. Joseph. It's his fault. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to, to the book of Ephesians, we'll be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 4, uh, basically the first half of the chapter 4. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. I, in a manner of speaking, I grew up in the area. I say in the area. I grew up in Elkhart. Um, so sort of in the area because I grew up in, in Elkhart. Now, I know it's popular to... Uh, embellish your, your life experiences to give you more cred. So I don't want to do that. So I didn't I didn't grow up in the worst part of Elkhart, but I could sit on my porch and watch the worst part of Elkhart. Okay, I could sit on my porch and, and watch drug deals and, and other transactions. I never saw somebody murdered um, while living in Elkhart, but I did, while walking in the alley by, by the house, find a very nice... A very nice uh, Colt 45, like nickel-plated pearl pearl handle, very nice, just lying, lying in the alley, as one does in Elkhart. <laughs> so when I say I grew up in the area, that's, that's where I grew up. But we, uh, after getting married to Abigail, we, we moved away from the area for a while and, and came back to the area about eight years ago. And when I say we came back to the area, about eight years ago, I say we came back to this area. We live now between Goshen and Middlebury. So more, more when I say this area, we're, we're thinking along the same area. And as it so happened, it was, it was about this time of year, when we had recently moved back to the area, I, on a nice Thursday morning, as one does, went to Rise and Roll Bakery. Don't judge me. It was to get the granola bars, I'm sure. <laughs> because those granola bars were, used to be really good, but I think they changed recipe. But in any event, so it was a nice Thursday morning, and I went, as one does, to Rise and Roll Bakery to get something or other, and there was a sign on the door. Closed for Ascension Day. Ascension Day. Ascension Day. Now, I grew up in, in a faithful Bible teaching, believing, preaching church. I had gone to Bible college. I had graduated from seminary. I had been a pastor for five years. And I walked up to the door that Thursday morning at Risenville Bakery Ascension Day. What's that? People celebrate Ascension Day. Now I know for for some of you that's that's how you grew up, because many among us this morning grew up Amish, and that was that's kind of a big deal. Obviously, I mean, Rise and roll shuts down. <laughs> but for me, from my experience, that. That was something new. Ascension Day? People celebrate the Ascension? Like, yeah. That's probably not a bad thing to do. To to sort of order your life around big events in the Bible. So what I wanted to do this morning is just look at one of the passages that talk about the Ascension. And and what it means for us. Now there, as as many of you know, there are many aspects of the Ascension and what it means for us. And I'm not going to talk about those. I'm going to talk about what what this passage talks about this morning, Lord willing. So Ephesians chapter 4, let's stand together out of respect for God's word. And we will read the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning Father, we thank you that at your right hand, there is a man, that our flesh and blood has risen to a place of rule and authority and glory, one who is familiar with our trials and temptations and who can in every way sympathize with our struggles and trials. Lord, we thank you that as he is at your right hand, he intercedes for us. He is praying for us, even as we pray to you right now. And Lord, we thank you that you hear his prayer and that you hear our prayer. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would show us this risen and ascended Jesus, that your spirit would strengthen us to respond rightly to the truth of the ascension. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to, to just sort of map out the passage that, that we've just read. We begin with the first three verses, a, a moral exhortation, right? I see that in, in the word urge. I urge you. I, I call upon you. I implore you. I beseech you. This exhortation, a moral exhortation. To what? To, verse 3, maintain the unity. So there is a moral exhortation, to maintain the strength of unity, right? And I get that, the strength of unity, from that that phrase, the bond of peace, at the end of verse 3. So we have this moral moral exhortation to maintain the strength of unity, the bond of peace. How How do we maintain the strength of unity? In weakness. So there is a moral exhortation to maintain the strength, the bond of unity, and we do that in weakness. Why do I say in weakness? Because we do that, verse 2, in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Now perhaps you you caught on as we read through this passage, but this idea of, of unity... And oneness is kind of of a a tie that goes through the whole passage. It's kind of a big deal, right? Verse verse 3, maintain the unity. Then beginning in verse 4, all those ones, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And then in verse 13, the third section, attain the unity. So maintain the unity. One, 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 one attain the unity. So unity is is kind of a big deal. But in these first three verses, we see that the threat to unity is within. There is a threat that that is within us to unity. That is why these virtues are given. That is what they, they presume. Right? If we need humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, what does that presume what is the assumption there right there's 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 a tendency there's a possibility that tensions will arise within us right and that is so this this these three verses and and the particular even verse 2 is very anti our day and age in america because our day and age we mark ourselves by, by how much offended we can be <clears throat> through critical theory and, and this idea of, of intersectionality that you sort of count up all of your oppressions, you know, and that's, that's your worth. But, but this verse says, no, we live by these things, by not making ourselves the victim, but by making ourselves small. We grow strong by making ourselves weak. I... I give up my rights. I give up my prerogatives in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in bearing with one another in love. And we see how how our society values those things as we can list on so many fingers and toes all all of the great men and women of our society that are marked by these things, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. All all of these self-drives, this desire for self-actualization, self-fulfillment, my, me, all threaten the unity that Paul knows is, is necessary. And they all threaten to, to unmaintain, to destroy the unity that, that the church is to have. So we are exhorted to have a, a worthy walk. And so what we see in this, in this moral exhortation to a worthy walk to maintain the strength of unity by becoming weak is that the worthiness of your walk is, is determined by, is, is judged by, is gauged by your relationship to others in the church. If if a worthy walk, right, if a worthy walk is marked by humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity, a worthy walk demands that you are in the church. With the church. With the people. There is... So... If I'm not being clear. There is no possibility... There is no possibility of a worthy walk if you are not in fellowship with the church. In person. Right? I'm talking about, like, with people. Right? Because you cannot be... Humble, gentle, bearing with one another in love in your living room alone. You cannot be humble, gentle, patient, loving, walking worthy in a boat on a lake. Now I'm speaking to people who are here. Like, Brad, why are you so mad at us? We're here. Like, amen. I'm not bad at you but i'm just this is what the text says right because we have this thinking and it has been it has been helped by this phenomena that we had a few years ago this idea that we can virtually worship and that's exactly what it is you know what virtual worship is not real a worthy walk demands that we are together the life of the church is the life of the members of the body, one man says. Where there is any attempt to break loose from the community of hearing and receiving necessarily involved, any attempt to hear and receive the word in isolation, there is no church and no real hearing and receiving the word of God. For the word of God is not spoken to individuals, but to the church of God and to individuals only in the the church. So we begin with this moral exhortation to maintain the strength of unity in weakness, so to speak. The weakness of humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. So from this... From this moral exhortation, Paul then goes to this doctrinal truth of, of unity, right? In verses 4 through 6, this doctrinal foundation of unity. And, and the sense there is not you ought, right? Or you should, but it is simply there is, right? That, that is how verse 4 begins, right? There is. This, is. this is a reality. There's no, this is what, this is the ideal. This is what you should be. No, there is one body. There is one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We see here one of the the, literally hundreds of places in the New Testament where where each of the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are mentioned in, in order in context, in a, in a condensed context, but here we notice something that is not unique because it happens other places. But it is it is different than what, than how the Bible often speaks of the Trinity. How does the Bible normally, and how do we normally think of the members of the Trinity, the, the Father, the and the Holy Spirit? How does how does Paul talk about the Trinity here? Right? There is one spirit, verse 4. There is one Lord, which is Paul's shorthand for Christ, the Lord Jesus, in verse 5. There is one God, which is the shorthand for, as he en- enunciates there, the Father. So here, it is the opposite order of the way we normally think of the, of the Godhead, but it is the order in which we actually theologically experience the Godhead. This is the way we experience God. The Spirit confronts us and convicts us as sinners. So the first person we have experience with in a saving way is the Spirit because he comes, as Jesus says, and convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he gives, what does he give? The Spirit gives us faith in Christ. The Spirit draws us to Christ and unites us to his body. And in the glory of Christ, what do we see? What does Jesus say? You have seen me, you have seen the Father. So this is the order in which we actually experience God, one might say, experientially. There is one Spirit who fits us into the body and who seals us to the one hope of eternal life. There is one Lord Jesus Christ who saves us by the one faith in the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. And baptized into Christ and into this baptism of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are joined with Christ and His body. And there is one God and Father of all, specifically of all believers, as, as we hear repeated frequently enough here that I don't think it needs elaborated on, that, that the Bible speaks of God as the, the Father of all believers. He is the Father only of, of believers. He is our Father. Overall, This is just simply taking the word God seriously. He is over all. He is sovereign. That results for us in in contentment and joy, knowing that God is in control. He is through all. He accomplishes his purposes through circumstances, through even believers, and he is in all, dwelling within us and, and working his will throughout all creation. So this is the doctrinal truth at the center of this passage, that God is one. One Lord, one faith, one spirit, one Lord, one God, one Father. God is one. And so because God is one, there is one body. This is the isness. There is only one body. There is only one people of God, one church. God isn't in the habit of of going to the store and seeing what fits today. Right? Because God is God. He knows what he's doing. So there's only one way he's doing things. And it's this way. Through his work of joining one body into Christ by one spirit, one faith, one baptism. The beginning in verse 7. 7 through 16. We, we talk now. So we started with the maintaining of the unity in verses 1 through 3. This moral exhortation to maintain unity, the strength of the unity through weakness. Then the doctrinal foundation that God is one in verses 4 through 6. There's only one spirit, one Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism. And now we go to the practical attainment of, rea- of, of unity, right? And we see that in verse 13. That's the unity that's talked about in these verses until we all attain the unity. So unity is, is something in several different senses. Unity is, is a reality, according to verses 4 through 6. There is unity because there is one God, one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. But unity also needs to be maintained because we have problems within ourselves. Individual personalities and, and desires and wills that creep up and would seek to, to harm the unity of Maple Grove Church. But there is then also finally this sense in which we attain unity. We, we are going towards unity and the picture here is, as we will see in these verses is, is growing in unity. How do we attain? How do we get or live out here and now in 2023 in Topeka, Indiana, here and now, the doctrinal truth that God is one, that there is one faith, one body. How do we attain that? Verse 7, but grace, but grace. Now this might seem like Sort of a puzzling transition. Why but grace? Well, grace has been assumed right from the list of virtues in in verse 2. Again, the patience, the bearing with one another in love, the humility, the gentleness. None of these things come naturally to us. We don't find those things by nature within us. They are given to us by God as God works His grace. But what verse 2 also assumes and And what the rest of this passage, verses 7 and following, pretty much details explicitly, is that when we talk about unity, we're not talking about uniformity. And we're not even talking about unanimity. We're not saying that that everyone is the same. I was kind of surprised because I I thought maybe with Ascension Day, there'd be a little few services today. And the Amish, but man, there are a lot of Amish on the way to church today. And they were, there was unity, right? Black and white, there was unity. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not the kind of unity we're talking about. We're talking about a unity that, that is the response of, of grace, the result of Grace. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grace, this unity that we are to maintain, that, that is because there is one spirit, one Lord, one Father. This grace comes for a reason, or from a source, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, Scripture says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So here we come to the whole point of the sermon, now that we're 20 minutes in. So we see the fact of the ascension, the facts of the ascension. First of all, by by way of approaching this in, in verse, verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. We see something first that needs to be just briefly mentioned. We see for the New Testament, it says, for Paul, for the Holy Spirit, Scripture is speaking. Paul here in verse 8 quotes Psalm 68, 18, uh, sort of. Um, he adapts Psalm 68, 18, and he says, it says. right?" For, for Paul, Scripture is something that is still speaking. Even the Psalms, they are speaking. It is God still speaking. It is not something that God once said, but doesn't have too much of a difference on us today. Scripture says. It says. And Scripture says... What scripture says, it says of Christ. Therefore, it says, Psalm 68.18 says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gave gifts to men. Now you can read Psalm 68, which, if I was a better budgeter of time, perhaps we could and would and should. And you will find Jesus nowhere mentioned in Psalm 68:18, or Psalm 68. You will only read Mention of God doing these things and ascending to his reign and his rule, his sanctuary. But because for the New Testament, for the apostles, we come to the Old Testament and we hear it as God speaking, and we hear it as God speaking to us of Jesus. So Paul, as is the apostolic habit, takes this promise of something in the Old Testament and says, yeah, that's Jesus. When Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So, again, something else to realize is, is that here Paul is speaking about Jesus in ways that fit with the rest of, of the New Testament. Now I know we're mixing our holidays um, by me mentioning the virgin birth. But let's, let's think about Christmas for a little bit. One of, one of the criticisms that, that some critics of the Bible speak of, of the virgin birth and the New Testament and Paul in particular is that Paul doesn't mention it that the virgin birth isn't a big deal. It doesn't matter. And that for that for Paul, the virgin birth has no... It's like Paul didn't even conceive of that. Yes, it is true. Paul does not mention that Jesus was born of a virgin. But how does Paul, in, in verse 8 and 9, talk about Jesus coming to earth? What does, Jesus, what does Paul say about Jesus and his appearance on earth? He... He descended. Now what does that what does that assume? It assumes that he 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 descended. He came down from somewhere. Now when I talk if, if now maybe there weren't any. Let me let me look. No, there weren't any there weren't any birthdays this week. Often there are birthdays. When we talk of birthdays, When you talk to somebody about their birthday, do you ever say, oh, when did you descend to earth? (laughs) Why don't we do that? Because none of us descended to earth. But Jesus descended to earth. He came to earth, which, which means that he must have been somewhere above earth first. So yes, Paul does not mention the virgin birth. But Paul says he descended to earth, which fits with With John's idea, right, of of the word who was with God, the word who was God, took on flesh. Does John mention the virgin birth? No, John doesn't either. But what does he say? The word who was with God, who was God, took on flesh. So this incarnation, this from above, Jesus came down to earth. He descended to the lower parts, to the lower regions, to earth. But he ascended. What do we understand by the words, he ascended into heaven? That Christ, we could turn to the book of Acts and and read it. That Christ, in the sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven and continues there in our behalf until he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. In other words, Jesus is not here in body anymore but he is coming again. But wait a minute. Isn't Christ with us even into the end of the world as he promised? How can Christ say he is with us to the end of the world if he's not here, if he's ascended into heaven? We, We remember that Christ is true man and true God. According to his human nature, he is not now on earth, but according to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is in no time absent from us. So, in his his humanity, Jesus has left earth. Jesus came down for us men and for our salvation. Jesus came down to become our great high priest, to take our flesh upon us, him, to bear temptation and trial, to conquer them, to pay the sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised again from the dead, and Jesus, in his human nature, ascended back into heaven. But in his spirit, by his presence as as being God, he is is here, still, by his spirit and, and by his gifts and in his divinity. And I don't know how much this helps us because this is a deep and mysterious truth, but it does fill out the picture. Not only is Christ here with us on earth, we are with Christ in heaven. What does Ephesians 2.6 say? Many of you should be able to say it. Now, the problem is that, well, wait a minute, we're already Ephesians 2.1-10. You start me to pick out verse 6. What does Ephesians 2.6 say? And what did God do? And raised, raised us up with him and... Seated. Whew. That's it's that's pretty incredible, right? It's so it's, it's in a sense exactly the opposite. Jesus is no longer here in body, but he is here by his spirit and by his divine presence. We are here in body, right? I think. <laughs> Generally speaking, those of us who are awake and cognizant are here in body, but in this deep and spiritual truth that Paul just talked about in Ephesians 2, 6, God, we are already raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. That's something we can we can probably get into some some deep weeds if we think about it too long. But but let me remind you that what that we do we do worship with that idea. Often in, in a lot of our better old songs. Oh that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. Holy, holy, holy All the saints adore thee, Casting down their golden crowns Around the glassy sea. The whole triumphant host Give thanks to God on high. Hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost They ever cry. Hail Abram's God and mine, With heaven our songs we raise. Angels in the height adore him. You behold him face to face. Saints triumphant bow before him. Gathered in from age every race. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise with us, the God of grace. It is, isn't it? There's a lot of good songs. And in our songs, in our worship, in our heart language, even even when we don't don't understand it, we sing about this, that, that we are already in heaven with the saints, even as Christ is still here with us. What is the result or the effect of this ascension? He gave gifts to men verse 8. This is the point that that Paul is is particularly going to begin elaborating on in verse 11. And so since Paul is going to elaborate on it in a bit, I will too. So he is, gave gifts to men. That is, again, now that we're 40 minutes into the sermon, we've got to the point of the sermon. The ascension is that Jesus gave gifts to men. Where did Jesus ascend to? (laughs) He says, Far, far above the heavens. He is the one who ascended far above the heavens. Paul talks about this earlier in the book in in chapter one. Verse chapter one, if you want to probably just turn one page, you'll you'll be there, chapter one, verse twenty. That God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So where did Jesus go? Far above all the heavens. Far above the earth. Far above every name. And while we're talking, you know, we're sort of talking geographically, we're not talking about a place, right? We're not talking well, well, Jesus is here at God's right hand, but he's not here at God's left hand, right? We're talking about... This idea of God that uh, Jesus is at God's right hand is that He is the place of authority. So we're we're talking about not a, a geographical place that we map in the universe. Well, you know, if you just you go to Pluto, you take a left, 14 billion light years, you'll be there. No, it's it's this rule, it's authority. Far above all the heavens. And why did Jesus ascend? Quickly, the purpose of his ascension at the end of verse 10, that he might fill all things. And again, Paul talks about this in the exact same context as he talks about where Jesus went, far above all rule and power. Back in Ephesians 1:22 and 23, another incredible passage with deep implications. How does Jesus fill all things? Ephesians 1:22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In, in this conception, how is he going to fill all things? Jesus is going to fill all things through his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. At the ascension, Jesus left this earth and assumed this position of, of rule, authority, and might at God's right hand. From that position of authority at God's right hand, one of the ways Jesus exercises his authority is by giving gifts. Through this giving of gifts, Jesus builds and strengthens his church, unites the members of his body to himself as their head and to each other as fellow members, and extends his reigning presence throughout the world. Jesus ascended into heaven that he might give the gift give gifts to the church to fill the earth with the presence of his fullness. So, because Jesus ascended into heaven so that he might fill all things through his body, the fullness of him who fills all, he gave gifts. There are two central teachings that we see about the gifts of, that Jesus gave. All are gifted. All are gifted. Some are gifts. We see that all are gifted in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. We see that all are gifted in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. The saints are equipped to build up the body of Christ. We see that all are gifted in verse 16 from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. All are gifted. That is the first central truth we see in the gifts that Christ has given because he has ascended. All are gifted. If you are in this room... If you are a believer in Christ, if you are baptized into Christ by the Spirit, if you are a part of the temple of God, you are gifted. You are gifted to do something, to serve, to work as, as this pastor talks about, to build up the body of Christ Now what what does what are some of the things that this means You are gifted And Christ gave according to the measure of of his gift It means you have a gift or gifts Your neighbor has a gift or gifts and we all have different gifts Some people are gifted in this way some people in another way But all are gifted for the health of, of the body. Right? The heart does one thing, the liver another, the brain another, the fingers another, the foot another. Right? Often, it is said that, that too often the body of the church is just one big mouth and a bunch of little ears. Right? That's, that's not the picture of the body. And you do have permission to tell Jason that I call them a big mouth. are gifted. First main truth. Second main truth, some are gifts. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. The apostles and prophets, which we would consider as foundational gifts, those those gifts that have been given as we have in the scriptures. The evangelists, people who who evangelize, who spread the gospel. Pastors and teachers, whether that's teaching pastors or pastors who teach or pastors and, and teachers, it's pastor teachers, right? These people are gifts, okay? Pastor Jason is, is Christ's gift because Jesus has ascended is, is Christ's gift to Maple Grove. Pastors, our pastor is a gift. All are gifted, some are gifts. What does this mean? That we hoard our gifts, that we gloat over them? That we put, on, put them on a shelf to show them off? That we bury them in the ground to protect them? No, all must serve. The gifts are given so that all do something, right? Again, verse 16, in the working properly. Every joint with which it is equipped... Saints, gifted by Christ, us, equipped by Christ's gift of leaders, are made fit for ministry. Ministry is something that we all do to one another, to the world outside of us. It's something that we all do. It's not just something for the pastor or the elders. It is something we all do. So, on the one hand, we, as as the body, can't view the ministry as something that, that pastor does. And on the other hand, pastor can't view the ministry as something that only he does either. Pastor exhorts us and builds us up to do the work of the ministry. We didn't get to it in Sunday school, but but the next part of Elijah's life is, is his depression. You know, saying, Oh, I'm all alone, all the work is mine. And that is not true for any of us, the pastor or the body. What is then, but what is the work of the ministry? verses 12 and 13, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The journey of unity, because it is something we must attain to, something we are traveling towards, the journey to ministry takes us from childhood to adulthood, to maturity. At at the beginning, we saw that the threat to unity was within our own differences that can arise up. Here we see a threat to unity from, from without. Before, the threat to unity was within and we need to grow small, shrinking ourselves to be big towards other people, to love them, to bear patiently with them. Here, the threat to unity is from without. And the remedy is to grow tall, to grow up into maturity. That we no longer be tossed to and fro by waves of doctrine, of teaching, instruction, of information, false information, fake news. By human cunning, and the word there is by dice or trickery, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the first three verses of this passage teach us that the threat to unity is within and that we must grow small. Again, now we are told that the threat to unity is, is without false teaching, false ideas, the cunning of man. And the remedy is to grow tall, to grow up. It is the unity, according to verse 15, that is based on truth, rather speaking the truth in love. Why? Because truth is the only place where we can live in legitimate freedom. Lying destroys us and it destroys the people around us. It destroys our relationship with God and with others. But Jesus rose. He ascended into heaven and is at God's right hand and he gave gifts. He gave gifts to each one of us to build up this body. And he gave gifts. The pastors and teachers. Evangelists. The apostles and prophets. For building us up. That we may build up the body. Throughout this letter. And throughout Paul's letters. And throughout the New Testament. Even when we throw in the, the writings of Peter. There are two big picture Pictures, pictures of, of the church. The church is a body. And the church is. A building. Now, when I say the church is a building, I'm not talking about these buildings, but the church is is a building. Which shows us two complementary truths, truths about the nature of the church. The church is a building, which tells us what? That it is acted upon. Right? A building is acted upon by a builder. And who is that builder? Christ builds, builds us. But the church is a body to show us that we are not just passive, inanimate pieces of rock and stone. As Peter mixes the metaphors, we are living stones. The church is a body to show that God does not do the work without our involvement and active participation. The church is a body, and unless each member of the body accomplishes its purpose, performs its role, the whole body will not thrive. The body will not thrive if a part of the body is not healthy, is not working with the working with which it is equipped, according to verse 16. You can have the healthiest heart in the world, but if you have liver cancer, you are going to die, and probably soon. We depend on the gifts of Christ, which means we depend on one another. Yes, Christ is going to build his church, but he is going to use the members of his church to do so, those who are gifted and those who are gifts. The picture here at the end of Ephesians 4, this passage, verses 15 and 16, is of a body tightly joined together, a whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Intimately connected. Again, the passage expects, assumes, and demands close and lasting contact with other Christians, other members of the body. And, and as I thought about that this week, I thought of this thing. How many of you have a phone, a smartphone? Well, we—but that's the problem. We do know how smart it is. How many of you have ever used Google on your smartphone or even on your computer? How many of you have ever been amazed that you can type in two letters, not even two words, two letters, and Google knows what you want to ask it? Does does Google know us better than the person sitting behind us? Beside us, in front of us? How can it be that, that Google is more intimately connected with our mind than one another? Jesus ascended into heaven and he gave gifts to us. He gave gifts to us for this reason, to maintain unity, to attain unity, so we might build each other up in love. So, I guess what I'm saying is that the Amish might be onto something by celebrating Ascension Day. It's kind of a big deal. The risen Savior at the right hand of God rules and reigns, and he wants to fill the earth, and he wants to fill the earth with the fullness of his body, which is his church, the fullness of him who fills all. And he does that as we maintain and attain the unity of the body, drawing closer to one another and drawing closer to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for our risen ascended Savior. We thank you that Jesus has gone into heaven, and he has has not left us as orphans. He has, first of all, given us his spirit, and that Jesus has given us gifts, given gifts to each one of us who are believers, who are your children, and given us gifts of of pastors and teachers, of evangelists, of, of your word, the apostles and the prophets. Lord, we pray that, that indeed this vision of, of maintaining unity, of attaining unity, that, that is a reality because we only have one God, one Lord, and one Spirit would be lived at Maple Grove Church here in little old Topeka, Indiana. That at Maple Grove Church we would begin and continue and continue to experience in new ways the unity that life in Christ entails, the unity that results from the grace of his gifts. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.